Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. On today's episode, we have David Holland. David is the co-founder of Fractal Value Advisors. Based in Cape Town, Fractal advises both corporates and asset managers on making strategic decisions that will help them create long-term value. He's the co-author of the book Beyond Earnings, applying the Holt CFRY and Economic Profit Framework, where he explains the importance and usefulness of the cash flow return on investment metric. An enthusiastic musician who has won different awards on songwriting and a member of the band Hiding in Public, David discusses the role of non-fungible tokens in the music industry, what he learned on decision-making at a course in Stanford, the application of averages, growth for the sake of growth and energy transition in emerging markets. On this special episode, the value team was joined by Kandian Kossi, head of Schroeder South Africa, who co-hosted the session. We hope you enjoy it. So David, thank you very much for coming to the Value Perspective. It's an honor to have you here. Thank you, Juan. It's, a, it's an honor to be here. I look forward to this chat. Um, maybe before we start, it might be a good idea for you to introduce yourself, give us a little bit of background, um, where you come from, what you've been doing. Yeah, okay. Um, so my background in, in really career trajectory is really quite random walk, <laughs> if I can use that phrase. Um, and, and I certainly uh, suggest to, 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 to students I have that, that I teach, you know, when opportunities pop up, don't be afraid to, to take different paths. So what's my path? Well, I come from Chicago. Um, I studied chemical engineering, so I've got a master's degree in chemical engineering. Uh, so I did that at Stanford University, got my bachelor's at the University of Illinois. Uh, and then I worked as an engineer for many years. And in fact, I was working in Germany for a number of years. Um, and uh, as, a, as an engineer, and at some point I, I realized uh, I was quite expert in fluid flow and it was time to learn something about cash flow. So I, I thought I would do an MBA. Uh, so then how did I find myself in South Africa? Well, I, I had to come down here on business in 1995 on a scouting trip for this German company. So I visited the whole country and really fell in love with it and was quite, quite excited by the possibilities here. Uh, so uh, I needed an excuse to stay. So I did my MBA at the University of Cape Town in 1996, instead of returning to the U.S. from, from, from Germany. Uh, so my main focus was strategy and finance and really trying to uh, combine them. So Michael Mobison, like saying that finance and strategy should be joined at the hip. That, that's been my philosophy for, for quite a long time. 
Um, so I was leaning much more on the valuation finance side than the strategy side. So that led to building valuation models, capital allocation models, corporate performance, doing that kind of stuff for companies. Um, <clears throat> uh, then I started building uh, valuation models and performance models for fund managers. So I was doing this in both. Uh, long story, uh, let me try to fast forward this a bit, otherwise it'll take up the whole program. Um, I, uh, I became quite expert in cash flow return on investment, which was a very, which was a very good metric to use in South Africa because we had 10 to 15% inflation at the time. Um, so it, it, it really helped sort a lot of the old asset, new asset dilemmas that you get using ROIC and metrics like that. You know, those, those metrics aren't a problem if you've got low inflation, but they can be a big problem in high inflation, uh, high fixed asset environments. Uh, so, uh, so I was using CFROI quite a bit. Um, and I'm sure Kondi, I could entertain him with a number of stories uh, from, from that era. Uh, Credit Suisse bought uh, uh, Holt in 2002. So Credit Suisse, or Holt Value Associates was the, the developer of the CFROI framework. Um, so at that stage, um, uh, and I was using it here, uh, they, they asked me if, if I would go to London to, uh, to head the global solutions global custom solutions team. So I went to London in 2002, left, left uh, South Africa. And there we worked with fund managers to, to, to build valuation models, quantitative stock picking tools, things of that nature, um, and, and putting out quite a bit of content, including uh, a book. So uh, I stopped working at Credit Suites uh, 2011, and then I shifted into a senior advisor role. So, which which I still do do to this day. Um, so, how did I end up back in South Africa? Well, I came back here in 2011, uh, bid for a house. The next thing, I owned the house, so I needed to do something with the house. So I moved back. <laughs> so, so I found myself back here. So since coming back to South Africa, I've been uh, teaching uh, equity analyst boot camps. Um, I've been teaching company valuation at the University of Cape Town uh, Graduate School of Business, uh, advising Credit Suisse Holt, um, and doing corporate consulting again, which which I hadn't done for for which I stopped doing in 2002. So that's quite a fascinating place to apply a, a number of the, the, the topics we're going to speak about. Um, that's fascinating. Uh, that's a fascinating journey. And before we delve ourselves in the world of uh, decision making, uh, when making capital allocation decisions, we were discussing with Candy that it might be a very good idea to explore your other passion, which is music which is something that you have left out from your introduction. And it so happens that um, when I was joining Credit Suisse in 2011 and you were retiring, uh, on, I, I was told that on your party, you were playing on a band and doing sort of a concert or something like that. And, and then I learned that you had studied at one of the most prestigious music, music schools in the world. So, so it would be very interesting to hear your thoughts about that and also um, your opinion regarding this new thing in vogue, the whole non-fungible tokens, um, which are now being used in the art world and some people think that can be used in the context of music copyrights. Well, thanks for asking. Um, 
Yeah, I've always had a lifelong interest in music. Uh, I suppose I never had the courage to become a professional musician. Um, and in a sense there, you, you know, you really have to be committed to, to wanting to play. Uh, and you can make a lot more money as an engineer. So I guess I, I opted for that. Plus, I, I never considered myself a great musician in terms of playing. Um, but uh, my, my real uh, passion was songwriting. And so that's that's what I, I was focusing on at, at Berkeley was 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 uh, songwriting theory and just improving my approach. And it was quite beneficial. Uh, so, yeah, what, what did I do in London? Uh, recruit, recorded uh, four albums with a band called Hiding in Public. Uh, so with uh, the Hiding in Public members were studio musicians. And then I was writing the songs with uh, with two of the other members. And you can find our, our music on Spotify, Apple Music, and, and all those places. Uh, and we've yeah, we've had had some radio play. Um, so it was quite quite a fascinating journey. In fact, we put to, put together. We haven't recorded anything since 2012. Um, but last year during the lockdown, we we uh, compiled our favorite hiding in public songs and put together a, a best of called Out of Sight, which you can you can find on all, all of those streaming services. Uh, NFTs, yeah, I mean, the music industry is tough. Look, it's, you've got very talented people and it's really hard to make, to make money. I mean, even guys who can play, you know, still don't make a lot of money. Um, so you really have to be dedicated to it. I think the NFTs, things of that, uh, certainly they give hopefully more opportunity to, to make money. So in that sense, we see uh, the, the music publishing world now, you know, that's quite a hot private equity investment. You know, it, maybe musicians who are up and getting started can use these, these NFTs to, to sell portions of their songs to fans to, to start bidding, um, you know, just to support um, the, the recording process. Whether, whether, whether it'll pan out or not, I don't know, but it's, it's, it's another option, option for them. Cause certainly I can tell you, you know, getting airplays on Spotify and Apple music is not going to pay the rent. You know, you're getting a one us cent per play. You need lots and lots of plays to pay for recording sessions and, uh, and rent and, 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 and to live. So yeah, whether it's hype, hype or real, it's, 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 it's early to say. Um, I will say that though, for the artists, I mean, there's a lot of really neat data analytics. With, so if, if you're on Spotify artists or Apple artists, uh, there's some amazing analytics that artists are, are able to, to gain now. Who's playing their songs? Which songs were they playing? Um, are they being Shazam? Like I can see I had a hit song here in Cape Town. And it's, yeah, it was five years ago, six years ago, and it still gets Shazam. I can see how many how many people are are playing it every week, and where it's being played. So that, I think that, that that's all good for the musicians, but it's it's a hard industry to make money. I mean, I, I, I feel for the guys. It's it, it really is. You, I mean, you really have to want to play and, and do it. That's really interesting. Yeah, David, I gotta say the thing that stood out to me was the the, the names of the band and the uh, album. Uh, so very, very creative. Um, I guess another one that's kind of stood out is, you know, it's uh, a lot of maths, a lot of 
you know, you can argue science in the valuation side of things. And then you've also got a very, very creative side from a songwriting perspective. So that's, that's also pretty interesting. Um, but I guess kind of back to the, uh, the, the topic at hand. So, I mean, this podcast ultimately is really about, you know, making or decision-making under uncertainty. I mean, you alluded to your, your, your Stanford um, days. Um, uh, it so happens that you did a course called Strategic Decision and Risk Management at Stanford, if I'm right. Um, I'd be keen to hear sort of what you learned from the course and, and how it can be applied to sort of helping companies uh, slash investors make better decisions while controlling for or potentially accounting for, for, for risk. And I guess as an extension to that, are, are, are there tools that, that Fractal, your, your, your business, um, uses to help corporates remove biases such as, you know, confirmation bias, overconfidence, et cetera? Um, what, what, what kind of process does one need to build around controlling for that? Yeah, Stanford had a, a strategic decision a professional certificate. Um, so that's what I did uh, uh, geez, seven, eight years, <laughs> seven, eight years ago. Now, um, after I found out about it, um, so yeah, what's what's that program about? It's it's really it's 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 understanding the the, the process about making strategic strategic decisions. So as, as some of your previous guests, I'm sure have said, you really need to separate the process so that the process of making the decision is at a high quality process from the outcome. And of course, those things get conflated all the time. People see a positive outcome. They say, oh, it was a good decision. And you have to say, well, how do you know it was a good decision? Okay, so you really have to separate decision quality from decision analysis. So that's, that's quite fundamental in, in the course. So you, you, you learn about the, the process, how, what, you know, what, what are the components of a high quality decision? Um, now, if you think about this is kind of three legs of a stool, uh, which Ron Howard, uh, the founder of the program, would talk about. Um, you basically have, uh, you know, what do you want to gain from 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 the situation? You know, what, what what outcome do you want? Well, if you're a business, it's generally the highest expected NPV. Um, what are the alternatives? So now we need to understand what are the alternatives. And then thirdly, is what information do I need? So that could be the probabilities. What are the key drivers? What's the range of those drivers? So it's a it's a whole you know very robust uh, approach to to understanding uh, how, how to make high quality decisions and how to model how to model decisions. Um, certainly behavioral biases are a key thing. Um, so whether it's anchoring, overconfidence, uh, things of that nature, uh, you become much more aware of that. So. Uh, a couple, you know, in, for fund managers and corporate managers, uh, two very important biases, which are part of the overconfidence, would be uh, overestimation. So, in other words, you're too optimistic. So we see that all the time in analyst forecasts, right? Uh, so if if you know what that uh, optimism is, you can debias those things. So whether that's in the corporate space or the fund management space, that's possible. Another very insidious bias is the overprecision. Well, what's that mean? Well, that means that, that, in fact, when people start analyzing risk, their range is too narrow. So their distribution of outcomes is far too narrow. So in other words, they underestimate the downside. 
and they underestimate also the potential upside. So in fact, they're not making high quality decisions because they're not, they're not really uh, fully understanding the, the range in, in the outputs. So those two biases uh, are, are quite pernicious. And, and I see you know, in, in my corporate consulting work, they, they cause quite a, quite a few problems. Um, which, 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 which of those two biases do you, would you say is, is the most difficult to address? or to correct or to create a process that will help you overcome it or control it in a way. Yeah, well, that, that's the, the, the nice thing about going through a high quality decision process because that's what you're trying to do is make it rational and remove all these biases. Um, one of the key things is always gonna to be to put probabilities. So instead of saying something's likely or, you know, what do you, we talk all the time about worst case or best case, you know, gray sky, blue sky, uh, things of that nature. I don't know what that means. What, what, what is worst case to you? Is that, is that there's 1% or less of that happen? 1% of that or something worse happening? Is it P10? There's a 10% chance of that or something worse? Is it P20? We never know. And in fact, if, if you start uh, investigating that, you'll see that people aren't forecasting down low enough. So for example, instead of saying, give me your gray sky scenario, I'll say, I want, let's talk about the P10 scenario. So there's a one in 10 chance that sales are gonna be this or less, or that widgets produced are gonna be this or less, or song plays on the radio are gonna be this or less. That's your P10. So that, that's how you would try to estimate the, the downside. So you would do that for every single driver. And then, for your blue sky, you'd be asking, for example, for P90. So there's a one in 10 chance that, uh, that you're going to sell this many widgets or more. Okay, so whatever the driver is. So you, you try to do that for each, each of your drivers. And only after you do that, do you ask for the P50. So there's a P50 case, you know, 50-50 chance of this happening. Because if you ask for the P50 first, you'll anchor. So then you'll get too narrow of a, of, a, of a range. So which one's more dangerous? Well, look, optimism causes all sorts of problems. You know, people pay far too much for acquisitions. They fail, they don't get the value. Um, so I, I would say that's, that's probably the biggest error. Um, a, a, a friend of mine is doing a, a PhD now at the University of Cape Town, uh, Wayne Borcher. And uh, he's investigating these and he's showing, you know, there's a highly statistically significant relationship between companies that overestimate and performance. In other words, their, their return on assets are far lower if they have a tendency to overestimate their, their, their results. Um, so that's going to have implications, particularly, you know, for, for you when you're looking at companies, you really need to look at that manager in the eye and, and, and understand how robust is their decision process when they're allocating capital, when they're giving me estimates and things of that nature. So one, one thing that um, one thing that we, we have come across quite a lot in the series is the difficulty that people have to embrace probabilistic thinking and to mm -hmm. think in probabilities. 
And, and so from what you were just saying, I was wondering, when you sit down with management of a company and you are going through, give me the P values, that sounds very technical. And that's not a mental model that a lot, a lot of people would understand. So how do you go around that? So um, in terms of ranges, there's calibrations you can do. So there's there'll be things online you can, you can certainly look up. So for your team, you'd want to go through those calibration exercises if, if you've never done that. So, you know, they'll ask how, how many miles, is, they'll ask you ridiculous questions and then ask you for your 80% or 90% confidence level that it's between two values and then you'll see how often it is. So you don't want to be, you know, too precise, but you also don't want too wide of a distribution. So those are things you can train. Uh, in terms of the probabilities, I don't know. You know, humans humans they don't like statistics. Okay, so that that's that that's an issue. But it's not that you have to have a PhD in statistics. You just have to start trying to employ um, statistical notions. That's where p values. Anyone can understand what a p value means. Of course, there could be quite a bit of debate about what the actual value is. Um, but it, but if I say you know. Uh, what's your P10 value for how many people are going to listen to this podcast? Well, then I'm asking for an expert opinion. Now you might, so that would be the, the so-called inside view, right? From, from Kahneman. The outside view is, well, you, you've done a number of these podcasts, so you can do the statistics. You know, what is the P10 actually out of all the shows you, you, you have? Um, so there are ways of, of, of getting that, but you need to get people to talk about p-values instead of using words. So we, we need to pass a, a clarity test, as Ron Howard from, from Stanford would say. You know, we need to be clear about what we're speaking about. Um, I think a, a big issue uh, is this notion you all, all the time is, you know, especially executives will say, just give me the number. I don't want to see a distribution. I don't understand that. You know, don't, 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 don't just tell me the number. And that's actually the worst statement that someone can make because particularly you as an analyst, you know, your response should be, what number do you want? And I'll tell you the probability. Okay. Yeah. Cause there is, there is no number. Okay. There's an expected value. So that that is if there is a number, but that tells you nothing about the risk or the possibilities. You know, if someone's highly risk averse, you know, they they won't they won't they they won't probably like a thirty percent chance that the NPV could be zero or less. Um, so it's it's I think it really you know to to get it you you really need to associate probabilities with numbers and scenarios or whatever whatever you're asking. But you can train people to do this. You just have to you know it's bad habits you have to break. So uh, when I was uh, discussing this topic with Annie Duke the last time that we had her on the podcast, we 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 talked about this um, case situation where uh, Obama uh, was sitting down on the room with different people from the CIA and they were discussing whether or not they could attack the compound where Osama bin Laden was supposed to be. He says that he asked for the probabilities around the table. And, and the range of the probabilities was so wide that he said that he couldn't make a decision based on the probabilities. Mm. Have you been in that kind of situation 
and how how do you go around that? Yeah, well, that's yeah. There there are studies about that, um, and it's something I do with my students. I'll I'll, I'll in in which you you should you should you should do with with your team and certainly others who you run across is, you know, I'll I'll, I'll say we're we're speaking at a, at a dinner party, and and let's say I'm a fund manager. And you say, oh, that's very interesting. Um, tell me, is stock XYZ likely to outperform the index? And you know, you might say, yeah, it is, it is likely. Now, the, the so the question to the students is write down what probability you associate with the word likely. You know, so you so there's a number that's probably popped into your head. I, you know, you say what it is if. if if you've got it, um, but it's, I, I find with the students, it'll be between 20 and 80%. Now that yeah. likely is a word people use all the time and you've got this extraordinary range. Now, if, if, if the word likely means 70% to me, when you say, yeah, it'll likely outperform, I'm, I'm thinking back up the truck and buy, go overweight that stock. <laughs> now, likely might mean 40 or 50% to you. So let's say the stock does underperform. I've loaded up the truck. I've got the stock. I see you a year later and I said, you moron, why did you tell me to buy that stock? And said, I said, it was likely, you know, that's kind of 50-50. Why would you go overweight something that's likely? It's, mm. So that, this is the importance of really this clarity test, you know, attaching probabilities to words and making sure people have a, have a, have a shared understanding. So, so David, I mean, it almost sounds as though this is, I mean, you speak about the process and so on, but it almost sounds as though companies need to have a culture of this kind of way of, of thinking. I mean, would that, would that be correct? Almost like from, from top to bottom? Yes, absolutely. Um, really, you, you know, you can think of, you can think of a company or any organization as a decision factory. So like with your Obama example too, you know, the government's a decision factory. They've got decisions to make. Um, so then it's a matter of what are the objectives they're trying to maximize. Well, for, so, you know, for, for a government, uh, or, you know, especially if you're launching a military attack, well, there's multiple objectives, which makes the decision that much harder. Um, for, for companies, it's actually a little bit easier because you're basically trying to maximize the NPV. So if you think about a company as a decision factory, uh, I like to break it into four quadrants. So the first quadrant is strategies. What strategy? Well, that's the opportunities or alternatives. You know, what could we do clarifying the objectives? Now, once you have those opportunities and alternatives, that's what you need to run through a decision model. Okay, using a high quality decision process. Um, so, because it's really better to get the decisions right up front than it is to try to fix bad decisions later on. So, I think, you know, I, of course, I love financial performance metrics and doing valuations and things like that. Much of my career has been dedicated to that. But it's a bit too late. Now, so you, you really need to make capital allocation decisions as best you can using the expected NPV and understanding the risks. 
Okay, so risk being the distribution of outcomes. What's the probability that the NPV could be negative? Okay, all those things should be quantified. Um, once you do that, you should be selecting the most valuable strategies and the most valuable portfolio. Okay. After that, so that's your capital investment. So am I allocating capital? Should you use decision models? Absolutely. You're, you're doing your investors a disservice. And this is where companies make mistakes. They do not have robust decision models in many cases, uh, particularly when they're making these decisions by you know, their, their gut or intuition, as opposed to a rational process that they can score. Um, so the next thing after capital investment is, is your, your cash generation. So that's really where the performance analysis comes in. Are my returns on capital beating the cost of capital? Um, am I able to maintain those returns? I'll be applying DCF valuations to my various divisions. Do I have the most valuable portfolio? KPIs, key performance indicators, all those things, making sure that those are all aligned with, with value creation. Now, this is something I don't think they, they really teach in corporate finance. Um, it's that the, if you think about the evaluation as the invested capital plus the sum of all your, the present value of all your future economic profit streams, well, the sum of all your NPVs now in projects you haven't even undertaken is equal to the sum of the present value of all those economic profit streams. So if you're making decisions that are optimizing your expected NPV, then that should uh, manifest itself in growing economic profit streams going forward, which is going to make you potentially rich as an investor, you know, spotting those companies. Okay. So that's the cash generation. The next part is the capital distribution aspect. So that's really gonna be capital structure, dividend payout policy, buying back shares, and remuneration metrics. So governance, you know, very key here. Uh, am I paying executives based on earnings? Well, if so, that's foolish, you know, because <laughs> then I can make, I can grow my earnings by, by making very expensive acquisitions. So making bad decisions, they grow my earnings, I get paid, but I just destroyed value for the company. So. Absolutely, decisions are fundamental to every single stage of this process. You know, a company is a decision factory and, and really decisions are the only thing that managers can control. If you, if you, you, know, if you, if you approach it from that, that context, this whole thing makes sense, all, all these pieces fitting together. So, so David, you, you alluded to governance early, earlier on and I guess, if you ask nine out of, if you ask ten people, nine of them will probably say governments are not the best decision makers in the in the world, and and yet they're responsible for the environment in which companies operate. Uh, I'd I'd be keen to hear your thoughts on how difficult or different it is to advise you know government leaders if you have done so um, in in helping them improve their decision making processes versus versus corporate. You know, there's a there's a this misunderstanding that, that business leaders can easily step into government and run it. So, you know, we, we had that with Donald Trump, of course, in spades. Um, that, that is a misconception completely. Running a business is far easier than running a government. And, and why do I say that? Well, 
It's because if you're running a business, the objective function is pretty clear. Maximize NPV, you know, make the decisions with the highest NPV, and that's going to lead to value creation. Everyone's going to get happier. Everyone's going to be happy. Everyone gets paid. Of course, you, you avoid decisions that are going to blow up the company. So, but that's all you have to do is not, it's not easy, I'm, I'm saying, but, and of course you have to run a, a tight operations, but it's pretty clear what the objective is. In a government, what's the objective? Is it maximizing NPV? Well, not really. I mean, you, you, you want to create wealth for the country, but you need to create opportunity for people. You know, do you have healthcare or don't you have healthcare, education, you know? How do you balance the, these things out? Those objectives you know, are far more intangible and more difficult to model and, and, and to take into account. It's not that they can't, it's, but it's, it's, a lot more, it's a lot more difficult. Um, so in that sense, I, you know, I, I, I feel, I, 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 I don't wanna say feel sorry, but you know, I, I sympathize certainly with, with the government officials. Um, now, can they make silly economic decisions? Well, absolutely. We, you know, we, we see that in South Africa time after time um, with decisions that really make little sense. I'm sure there's some reason, but it's, it's hard to decipher what the reason is, is, is in many cases. Um, so when, when, when there's clear economic reasons for, for a decision, government can, can follow you know, a wealth maximization strategy um, and, and really think seriously about the economics, but that's not always clearly the case. So we recently had that scientist on the show. That was the guy who made a bet against Warren Buffett back in 2007, where he picked five hedge funds against Buffett's S&P 500. While discussing the bet, Nick Kirich asked him about the use of averages in the context of relatively isolated large capital allocation decisions say, a management making a decision on big M&A or investing on a large mine that will consume significant resources. And so I thought it would be interesting to hear your views and thoughts on the application of averages in that specific context. By all means, you want to try to compare the inside and outside view. Um, I'll give you an example um, to make it perhaps more concrete. So... So this is uh, occupancy in a healthcare um, uh, business. Um, so that, that's that's a key driver. And if you're trying to to understand what the, what the downside is, um, so if there's going to be successive waves, let's say of COVID, um, you might ask, well, what's your P10 value from here until the end of the year for the occupancy? in our hospitals. And you might ask that of a bunch of, uh, of executives in, 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 the, in the hospital and take a median or an average of those things. Preferably you would discuss it with them after getting these, these views independently. Okay, so that would give you a P10 estimate. Well, is there an outside view? Yeah, there is, because you've got his, history on the standard deviation in uh, occupancy. So you can use that and subtract you know, 1.3 times the standard deviation from whatever they think the P50 value is at that, that point in time to, uh, to get an outside view uh, 
uh, of the P10 occupancy. So with commodity prices, that, that's quite easy to do. So you can statistically calculate what you think the price is going to be. And you might compare that to what their forecasts are. And I've got a good story on that um, in a second, I suppose. Um, and you'd like to see those somewhat lined up. Um, what you don't want to see, of course, is them way off, because then they're probably being too overly precise in setting their, their range. But that's a way of checking it um, to, 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 to get, the, get the values. Um, so you, you have to be very careful of averages, for, for sure. I mean, averages really can, can be quite misleading. You really want the distribution of outcomes, which means you really need to understand which value drivers are the most important and out of those value drivers that are most important, understanding, getting the best potential estimates of those P10, P90 values, you can to understand the potential upside and the potential downside. Um, so in the, the case of the, the commodities, well, I know today's price, so I can calculate a P10 value, let's say one year from today for platinum or any other, any other metal. Um, and I could also compare it to their forecast that they have in-house and see, see maybe they're, they're being too optimistic about the forward prices. And if, let's say, the mine has too much debt, I'll say, well, be careful because you're being rather optimistic and you're not really considering the downside because if this does happen, you're going to be in a, in a financial distress situation. Um, so you really have to get the best potential estimates you can of, of, those, of those, 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 those drivers for P10 and P, P90 values. Uh, and, and that's where it's also important is if, if you have identified something as a very important driver um, to go ahead and pay for information on. You know, it, then it's worth paying for it. You, you can calculate how much it's worth paying for information, but generally it's you know, positive NPV to pay for information to really get a better estimate of those highly uncertain numbers um, because it reduces the uncertainty of your project overall, which is, which is what you want, higher expected value, reduced uncertainty. That's really interesting. Um, I, I've heard you many times before make the case that a company should only grow or pursue growth opportunities if they are if those growth opportunities will deliver a return on invested capital that it's comfortably above its cost of capital because otherwise they would be destroying value and that's as with many concepts in finance that's an easy concept to understand but quite difficult to execute in practice or follow in practice and markets and corporates are just obsessed with pursuing growth just for the sake of pursuing growth. So when you are sitting down with uh, management and you're advising them on X or Y project that they're thinking about doing in the future or, 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 or a board, how do you communicate this very delicate issue? So growth is probably the most misunderstood word in the investment community. So remember, we were talking about what probability would you attach to the word likely or, you know, your, your Obama uh, story. Um, the word growth doesn't pass the clarity test because when, when investors and, and corporate managers talk about growth, well, kind of the, the 
the implicit assumption is they're talking about growth in earnings. Well, there's two ways to grow earnings. So this is this is where the clarity test needs to be passed. And, and what you know what you really need to press corporate executives on when they talk about I'm going to grow my earnings by X. Um, you have to say, well, there's two sorts of earnings growth. There's efficiency growth. So I could get earnings growth by having higher margins, higher turns, and thus a higher return on capital. Okay, that's going to grow earnings. That's hard work. You know, that's that's running a better business. Um, I could also grow earnings by uh, investment. So if you've got a company that's got a track record for you know, trying to grow earnings or being very aggressive about growth and focusing on earnings, they'll start leaning into mergers and acquisitions and all too often using debt to do it. So they increase their probability of financial distress at some stage. You know, that's not good growth. If I'm making expensive acquisitions in, in, in M&A and, um, and I'm not, you know, properly understanding the value and, and you know, basically overestimating, being overly optimistic uh, about the future, that's not good growth. So efficiency growth in general, that, that's always good. And that's what you want as much of as possible. But you really understand where this, where, where's the earnings growth coming from? Now, my second point then is earnings growth doesn't really matter, okay? Because I need to understand the quality of the earnings. So this is where return on capitals course, quite, quite important, whether it's ROIC um, or CFROI, you know, is, is, is metrics, you know, they, all these metrics have their pros and cons. Um, but the, the, the idea is, is you, you want to invest if your return on capital is greater than your cost of capital, and you want to sustain that return for as long as possible. Okay, so then you'll be growing your economic profit streams. So it's not earnings you want to grow. You really want to grow your economic profit in that sense. So, and this is where, where companies, especially companies in trouble, I've seen this multiple times. You know, they, they fall under the, they're, they're underperforming and they fall under the, this illusion, we've got to grow earnings. So we got to do some big things. And I have to say, you know, the first law of holes is when you're in one, stop digging. If you're generating returns below the cost of capital, stop growing, fix, then grow. And this is particularly true of companies that are close to the cost of capital because they're most guilty of it. They'll keep trying to grow, but if you're growing in zero NPV projects, you're not creating any value. So it's the growth in economic profit that I want. It's not the growth in earnings. Okay. I'm quite interested in the aspect of how do you communicate this does the message does, are you able to to communicate the match message so that it go, comes across to people in management to understand that if they pursue X or Y, they are not really creating value? Yeah, the, the, the key the key connection people have to make, and this is what you have to show them, is that the value of an asset, especially the value of a company, it's your invested capital, so your book value, plus the present value of all those economic profit streams. So any incentive program should be based on increasing the economic profit streams, even if it's negative, as long as it's improving, that's a good thing. 
Okay, and then the, the faster it can improve. If you're if you've got a really high return on capital business, the last thing you want to see is those economic profits starting to fall because margins are falling and return on capital is falling. Um, so yes, you you can communicate that. Now, whether they make that part of their incentive program is a different thing, but you really want to try to set economic profit targets. And they'll get it, you know, you use the M&A example of, you know, how, how many, look at how many stocks the share price falls after they announce a big, a big acquisition. Um, you know, it's, it's just a, the market saying, we believe the NPV on that acquisition is negative. So the, the, the step you really have to make is say, every time you make a positive NPV decision, you can add that NPV to, to the value of the firm. Okay. If the market hasn't already you know, understood that, you can add that value to the firm. Every time you make a negative NPE decision, you can subtract that value from the firm, which is why, of course, the, the share price can react quite quickly to external uh, events and also any internal announcements, particularly M&A or drug tests failing, things of that nature. So, yes, I, I think they do get it. Um, I think it's better to communicate that using economic profit and building that connection between project finance and corporate finance that, that the economic profits and the NPVs are actually the same thing. So as long as you're taking on the right projects and doing that in a smart way, it will show up in your economic profits. And that's how you should get paid. Good. Thanks for that, David. Maybe just to round out the, the, the discussion to take a bit of a different tack here. Um, you know, sustainability, ESG, environment, social governance, all these conversations are sort of top of mind at the moment, maybe okay. more so in certain areas than, than, than others. Like I know Europe, it's, it's a big conversation topic, particularly around the Scandinavian countries. But uh, in, in terms of, I guess, getting your thoughts around this, maybe if we use this energy transition conversation as, a, as the anchor point, um, particularly within the context of emerging markets. I mean, what, what, what are your thoughts? I mean, I've, I've had conversations with my colleagues in the business, in the sustainability team, where, you know, I, I pose the question, is, is, is this sustainability discussion a luxury of being in a developed market? And, and within an emerging market context, we've got bigger problems that we need to worry about here. And perhaps it's, 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 it's not quite as important. I understand the impacts of it, but in terms of where we are economically, uh, our, our, our discussion's a bit different. We'd be keen to get your thoughts on that, David. Yeah, well, South Africa, of course, is that's a fascinating example. So one of the sunnier places on the planet. And really, South Africa should be leading the world in terms of alternative energy generation, the solar, wind, those things. Um, we got off to a good start, but then it stalled. Now, so most of our power is coming, of course, from coal-fired coal plants, and we're just still building two, two mega coal-fired plants, right? Um, that's where you, you have an interesting dilemma because government is still supporting coal because clearly there's coal miners and there's a coal industry. It's not gonna go away. Um, but it's missing a big opportunity to go alternative and to get some nice investment and to be a world leader in something. Um, you know, that's kind of your, I suppose, your dilemma earlier. We were talking with, with government about government. You know, what are they trying to maximize? 
in this case, I, I think the South African government's making a major mistake. I think it, they're, they're missing a massive opportunity to go alternative, solve a lot of the energy problem, and really become a world leader. You know, we should be investing in a smart grid and, and those things, not investing more money in a dysfunctional state-owned power company, which is the case. That's, that's very interesting, uh, David. Thank you very much. We are coming to an end of our session, and we, we always ask our guests two last questions. One is they can give us a book recommendation because we are very much avid readers in the team. And, and the second one is if they can provide us with an example of a decision where the outcome was poor and you can identify whether it was due to bad process and not bad luck. Yeah, okay. Um, for the book, so, so I guess I have to, to recommend the book that I wrote with Bryant Matthews, Beyond Earnings. Um, uh, recent books, uh, Calling I thought that was quite a, quite a good book. Um, so there, it's a professors at the University of Washington in the US. I mean, he's, one of his points is the bolder the claim, the better the, the, the evidence better be. And you know, we see the exact opposite, of course, now with a lot of the populism, particularly of Trump in the US. You, know, you make these bold claims, but you don't back them up with bold evidence. You know, and maybe that's something that the, the media has to think of, but, but certainly it's important. If, if someone's going to make a big, big claim, then they better have really significant evidence to back it up. Um, you know, if you want some different sort of things to, to inspirational, a book called Stoked by Chris Burdish. So he's a big wave surfer. So that's why I like living in Cape Town. I'm in, in, into surfing. Um, so this guy, this is a guy who won the Mavericks big wave competition, um, South African guy. Uh, and he, a year or two ago, I think about two years ago, he, he uh, stand up paddled across the Atlantic Ocean. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's just insane what this guy does for, for challenges. So that's quite a quite an interesting uh, book to read, um, especially if you're if you're into surfing. Uh, kind of a funny off the wall book, Ian Svenonius. Uh, so he used to be a musician. Um, wrote a book called Supernatural Strategies for Making a Rock and Roll Group. Uh, quite, quite hilarious. Um, I think a, a must read, and probably a lot of your colleagues have read it, Thinking Fast and Slow by Kahneman. You know, it's, that's, that's a book corporate managers and fund managers should, should certainly be reading. Um, I'll give you another name for decision analysis. Well, if you really want the the academic treatment, you'd read Ron Howard's book, um, but that's probably far too academic for, for most. A really, a really good, good book to read, um, which I think you can get free online, is Decision Analysis for the Professional by Mac, McNamee and Salona. Um, that's 20, 20 odd years old, I believe, um, but it's a really nice introduction to, to decision analysis and, and decision quality. So. Highly recommend that, that, that people take a look at that. Go and download it. And and uh, the 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 bad the decision with a bad outcome uh, with uh, with where the process was bad. Yeah, so I could give you. We can speak for another hour about that. Um, I think for me, if I wrapped it up, financial engineering. 
okay? And there's countless decisions that um, I think are poor, poor quality decisions because they're predicated on too much debt and overvaluing debt. Now, um, if you actually calculate it, you know, what's the value of tax shields? Well, it's only worth five to 10% of the unlevered enterprise value of a firm. It's less if the firm's got a high return on capital. It's less than 5%. So it's actually insane to be levering up to the extent that many companies do. Because of course, by levering up, you increase your probability of default. And if you get into that situation, um, then you've got angry clients. It's gonna, you know, your, your suppliers are gonna ask for money. Your employees are gonna look for other people. You're gonna spend your whole day dealing with bankers. Uh, and 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 Kondi, I'm sure you're, you know, this is a massive problem in South Africa. You know, how many companies do we want to list? Sassel, PPC, um, Aspen Pharma was in was in big trouble a couple of years ago because they were using debt to make acquisitions. Um, you know, we could go on and on. Lawnman blew itself up. Um, we could go on and on with companies that used far too much leverage and got themselves into big, big trouble. So for, for me, any, any time I see too much reliance on financial engineering, I run, Steinhoff, being, of course, being another example, um, I, I run. I distrust it, and, and I distrust managers who are too reliant on financial engineering. I want to hear about operational improvements. I want to hear how they're running a better business. I want to hear about how they're making positive NPV investments. I do not want to hear about financial engineering. I think it's... It, destroys more value than it adds. I'll give you one other, maybe just to, just to close out, but it's it was with a platinum mining company um, that I worked with a number of years ago. And uh, in their forecast, so this, this you know, I actually had inside information. Um, so it's, it's a nice case study, but at the time platinum was trading at about, so it's 2013, $1,500 an ounce. Now in their plans, they had the price of platinum going to, to 2,100 within three years. Now I mentioned earlier, commodities are random walk. You know what are the pro What's the probability of the platinum price going from 1,500 to 2,100? Well, that's a 40 percent increase. Well, statistically, you can say over three years, there's less than a 25 percent chance of that happening. Okay, so their plan was predicated on something that had less than a 25 percent chance of happening. And I was trying to make them, you know, aware of that. Now, how did that? So, one of the deliverables in that was to, to actually build a, a probability table, so showing time on one axis and what's the p-value of getting different platinum prices going forward. So, what's the p? You know, what's the? There's a five percent chance that the platinum is going to be this or lower in one year's time, two years' time, three years' time, five years' time. So calculating a table like that, so they could actually see, you know, based on today's spot price, this is what the price should evolve as statistically. Um, they really liked that. Um, one year later, they called me up and they said, uh, hey, you know, we really like that table you generated. Can you do that again for us? And I said, yeah, sure. Um, so I generated it. I just took today's, the, the spot price on that particular day. Now over that year, the price platinum hadn't really changed. Um, sent it back and I got a phone call saying uh, the, the CEO and 
other executives, they didn't like your table. So what do you mean they didn't like it? Oh, they said it's too pessimistic. I said, what do you mean it's too pessimistic? I said, no, 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 no th those values you forecast are too low. I said, that, <laughs> that's, that's a statistical outside view calculation. That is not my personal view. That's a, a purely statistical calculation. Well, is, is, is it so, you know, clearly they were betting on the price going up quite a bit and, and making investments and doing things, and probably, you know, of course, modeling their debt accordingly. So not really appreciating the potential risks. Well, one year later, so this was July 2014, one year later, um, the price of platinum had dropped two standard deviations and stayed there for the next you know, four or five years. Now, of course, it's gone up a few standard deviations. Um, but you know, those, these things happen. So even when you're aware of these probabilities and you're trying to build them into models, they still grab you by the neck when, when you see them occur. Now, this company ended up going effectively, you know, well, they fell into uh, financial distress and then were, were, were taken over for a song, you know, is, is part of trying to survive. Um, but that 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 for me clearly was a, a case of an, an of an unsound decision process and capital budgeting process and planning process, um, which 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 I know you know having been in the middle of it was was not was not uh, robust. That's really interesting, David. Thank you very much for your time. That was very generous. My pleasure, Juan. Thanks, David. Thanks, Condi.